14. We're looking at the first seven verses there. Acts chapter 14. As we continue our study through this book. It'd be important for us to understand that this book is a book that is an adequate testimony to us today and for all generations that God will accomplish the very thing that he promised would be done. That the gospel would go to all the world and then the end would come. We see it in a microcosm of a way in the first century. As Jesus said, there will be those standing there that wouldn't taste death for they saw the Son of Man coming in His glory and His kingdom. We get that from Matthew 24, 14, and we see that the Roman world, the Ucomeni, which is the stewardship of the time, of the state there, that ruled as an empire, would be reached with the gospel. And we read in the book of Acts that they indeed did that. They turned the world upside down. And by the end, the gospel had gone to Rome, and, and the faith of the Romans is said, even in the book of Romans, to be known through the whole world. So God kept his promise. The miracles and signs of tongues and these things have passed because the apostles, the prophets, have passed. There's none around. The foundation formed the church. We know that there was something more to come, just like in Joshua's day, that there was something more to be conquered, even after not one word of God's promises failed to be fulfilled. When we read the book of Acts, we see the sign gifts are given as signs of judgment, just like they were in the Old Testament when sign gifts were given. The miracles were set forth as a sign of judgment upon those who did not believe him or the miracles that pointed to him. And therefore, we know God kept his word as he did back in the times Moses and Joshua. And he keeps kept his word in the times of Paul and the apostles. Which encourages us that he will keep his word to the last day in this world to all believers that follow the Christian church. So as we read this, we're finding ourselves in Acts 14. And we're continuing to see the same Message, a, a battle, if you will, not in physical sword, but a battle that is being fought by the spiritual sword of the word of God coming out of the mouth of Christ and his apostles. And we read, beginning in verse one, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews, both Jews and Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews And some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, the cities of 
Lyonia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now may God bless the reading and preaching of his holy word. Amen. The message I've titled today is the kind of preaching that God blesses, or it could be simply the way they spoke. And the easy thing here and the easy thing through life is to go in the direction to say how we speak doesn't matter. God can just take a crooked stick and do some amazing things, which is true. It's often the case where the preacher has just bombed the sermon and in the old place where he would stand in the front and he would wait for the seven just as I am to be sung, he would only be having his head bowed, not because he was praying spiritually, he was praying for forgiveness and how lousy the delivery had been. And it was told me for many years that in those cases, well, that God oftentimes saves people and uses that and things. And, and in fact, sometimes he does. But that does not give us license to go off and aim for lousy speech. I mean, if that was the case, we should not prepare at all. We shouldn't contemplate what we're to speak at all. We shouldn't work through the text at all. Because if God is pleased just to use lousy speech, well, then the lousier it is, the better. You see, that's a foolish thing, isn't it? Because it's the most foolish thing to say, well, let grace abound, right? Let sin abound so grace could, right? It's a foolish thing to say, well, just because, yes, God is pleased at times to do great things through very, very simple things of speech or whatever, it doesn't mean that's the goal. So you can see we can overcorrect, can't we? We could go to the direction that we think, well, if anything's of eloquence at all, then it can't be used of God. But the truth is that there is an eloquence that's demanded. It's just not the eloquence of men. The eloquence arises out of the scriptures. It arises out of the text. He defines eloquence. He defines good speech. And here in this text, you can't get around it. It was the way they spoke that led to many people coming to Christ. You cannot twist those words. It, it says it. They spoke in such a way that purpose statement, a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And that tells us that the way we speak really matters. The way we speak can yield great results. William Carey said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for the Lord. Expect little, get little. So that is true. We certainly don't want to overcorrect the other direction, of course, and say, if you would, that speech being well like this is the very cause of salvation, because it's not. That's an error that's equally heinous, if not more, to say that it is the speech, or it is the preacher, or it is the preaching that is the cause of salvation. No, you see, salvation is of the Lord. So how do we reconcile this? That on one hand, the way we speak yields actually great numbers of believers versus 
the greatest speech in the world is not the cause of making believers? How do you reconcile the tension? And I believe the Bible reconciles it by stating plainly the truths and keeping us from going beyond those truths is that the speech that should be desired when proclaiming the word of God should arise so much out of the text that the word of God in its eloquence and in its majesty and in its beauty, God is pleased and is ordained to bring many people to Christ. So it is that speech matters, but it is not the cause. And this is the doctrine of it. Notice it's not the king's speech. It's not a certain dialect. It's not because we're speaking in these and thous. No, that's worldly thinking. Eloquence does not come by the way men think something is majestic. Eloquence comes by the fact that the word of God is glorious. And we are to be those who let the text breathe off the page, who stand in the pulpit so that people would be able to run to Christ because the speech before them is so powerful and beautiful and compelling. So it indeed matters. Whitfield, in the Great Awakening, it mattered. God gifted a man with such speech, such oratory, both in its level of sound down to its theatrics in the pulpit and on the hillside that many people trusted the Lord because of the way he spoke. You can't get around it. It's historical fact that great speaking is used to bring people in great numbers to Jesus Christ. And therefore, we should never discount the fact of requiring the preparation to do so, the prayer to do so, and the intense study to make sure we are letting the Word of God breathe so that God's people and God's would-be people would inhale that and be changed. Now, we need great speech to accomplish great things for the Lord. But great speech, according to the Bible, has to be defined. And that's what chapter 14, 1 through 7 does, is it defines what great speech is. The kind of speech or speaking that God blesses. It's the, it's the speech that God gives, but it is the speech that also God blesses. He blesses all that he gives. And if we want preaching that God blesses, we have to do a few things. We have to speak freely and boldly of the Lord. That's the first thing we'll look at. That Lord that we lovingly know and enjoy. I read this week a, a Twitter post. Somebody mocked at the idea of what you needed in preaching. And he discounted the idea of, of the heart. He said, well, preaching, 
preaching. People don't need to hear your heart preacher when you get in the pulpit. And I said to him, well, I understand what you're saying, but it seems to me today a lot of preachers need to put a little more heart in it. I mean, another person said this. People don't read, lost people don't read their Bibles, they read you. And the one thing I've learned in proclaiming the Word of God is you're not guaranteed who's going to believe and who's not. You know some will. But the front door to those people is the fact they know you believe what you're preaching. Or perhaps you're not in a pulpit. They know what you believe when you're preaching or speaking to them in the context you're called to. Whatever the case is, it does matter that the heart is affected by the Lord. And that while we are preaching to minds to compel them by reason, we are also preaching to the heart. And if we don't preach to the heart, you're not going to have people affected in their hearts. And the Puritans were known as doctors of the soul. They would tear up the conscience. The people would come to faith in Christ. And God used that. God used that. And so we speak of, we must speak freely. In fact, I won't announce the other two points. I'll just go to this one. Lord knows I might not make it to the next two. So I don't want to give you a teaser. Here's the thing. The first thing you see in the text is a, the fact, if you're reading off this page, first time reading it, like I was, as I first noted those words, they spoke in such a way. And I nailed down. Speech matters in bringing many people to the Lord. That's the first. Now I have a biblical theology of the whole Bible, so I know it's not the cause of it. So I'm reasoning myself. I'm working through it. But then I say, okay, well, Lord, I get that. I get the sermon point of the text. Now I need to know how is good speech defined from the text? And the text tells me. It stands out off the page. Verse 3, so they remained for a long time speaking boldly. You see it? Right there in the text, it tells me what good speech has to contain, at least part of it. I know there's going to be at least two other points because that's what I need for the pulpit Sunday. But I got one, and it says they spoke boldly. And so what I do is I look at that and I say, what does that word boldly mean? Does it show up anywhere else in Acts? And we see it all the way through. They, they would speak boldly. And, and Paul would ask for prayer from the Ephesians. Later, he would say, pray for me and pray for me that I may proclaim the word of God boldly. Because that's the way it ought to be proclaimed. Listen to that. It's not a should. When you have an ought, it's a moral issue. Therefore, what we're talking about is not just a prescription. We're talking about a moral command. The word of God ought to be preached this way. Therefore, I need prayer to obey the commandments of the Lord. Now, the word boldly is of a root that is a word that's interesting. It's parousia, which I 
recently saw a Reformed Baptist publishing company call their company that. It's interesting. Well, what does the word mean? It means freedom or frankness in speaking, to speak openly, boldly, and without constraint. The reference that I made of Paul asking for prayer is at the end of the spiritual warfare section of chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. And he ends it with asking for prayer that he would preach boldly because it is the way they ought to speak the word of God. So we know there's a battle here. The whole book of Acts is a battle. The whole book, the whole, the whole life that we live is a battle. But the thing is, is that Christ wins the battle, not just wins it, but is winning it. For he leads us in triumph always in Christ to some a fragrance of death and some a fragrance of life. But you can be sure the increasing measure of his kingdom is always growing. Another clue. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation, Job twenty two twenty six, there's a picture painted of this word. It shows up. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Well, the word, the word for boldly is, is, is that phrase in the Hebrew. Translated to the Greek. Lift up your face to God. Because why? You delight yourself in the Almighty. So now I've got even more. Now I understand good speech is going to be bold and free because because I can lift up my face to God out of a heart that has first delighted in God. Here's the key. If you're going to have good speech before people, before men, before women, you're going to have to first delight yourself in the Lord. There's a romance to preaching, but there's also a romance to the Christian life that it is a constant going into the word, going into prayer, Going into life with God because God through Christ is with you. He becomes all the more attractive to you each day, all the more beautiful each year, all the more glorious each decade. Why? Because you are seeking to know this God who came from heaven and laid aside his glory so as to be glorified in his death to die for our sins on a cross, to be buried and to be placed there in darkness and to come out of the grave in order to justify sinners and ascend to take the throne to rule his church in all creation. Can you not delight yourself in one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, One who is altogether beautiful. Can you not delight into the one whom like it is said of the Almighty? In Job 22, 25 through 30, here's the context. Then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. Is he your gold? Is he your precious silver? Or is your gold your gold? And is your silver your precious silver? 
Well, if Almighty is your gold and precious silver, then you will delight yourself in the Almighty. And there's the word. Lift your face to God. You'll be bold. You will make your prayer to him and he will hear you. You will pay your vows. You will decide. Notice it is. If your gold's your gold and your silver's your gold, you're certainly not going to pay your vows to God in gold and silver because the fact is, is God's got to be the gold and silver of your life. God's got to be valued above all that men pretend to bring and all that money falsely promises to give. You will decide on a matter and it will be established for you and light will shine in your ways. For when they are humbled, you say it is because of pride, but he saves the lowly. He delivers even one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. Now, again, as it is applied to Job, we know that Job needed no correction, but the statement is true. And the word study of the matter helps us, does it not, to see boldness flows from a heart that is delighted in the Lord. It flows from a heart that is convinced that Jesus is Lord, that Christ Jesus is the Lord of all the earth and of all heaven and under the earth. And we gladly bow our knee because first we delight in him. Job will be able to stand in the presence of God safely without fear and right relationship. He'll be able to lift up his face to God, Eliphaz argues, if he delights in the Almighty. And the obvious question is, well, before we get to that question, the obvious observation is in the text is these men loved God. They delighted in him so they could be bold. The second thing is simply this. Paul knew as many difficulties that he faced in life and many trials, there would be a great temptation to sin, just as it was for Job. Be a great temptation not to delight in the Lord. There'd be a great temptation to not know him more deeply year by year. And so he says, pray for me that I might preach it boldly for that's how it ought to be. He's in essence asking people to pray for his heart, to pray for his affections. He knows the things to say, but the issue is how he says them matters. How he speaks. And then the question for us is have we prioritized delighting in the Lord? Have we sought to spend time with him? We cannot expect that our speech will be compelling at all if we have not spent time with God in prayer, delighting in him, just standing back in wonder. Sometimes it's just reading a paragraph and saying, oh, God, I need that. Even as I preach this text, it's convicting. I've never spent as much time as I need to delighting in the Lord. I've never gone as deep as I ought to with the Lord. If there's any failure in the speech, it's because of me. If there's any success in it, it is because of God. I need the Lord so badly that it is an utmost prayer that I would delight in him. It's an utmost prayer that the church, I mean, think of the thousand things you would ask church, pray for me in this. Paul says, 
Not pray for me to get out of prison. Not pray for me about these chains. Not pray for me that I'll be protected from this and that and the other. Not pray for me in my illness. No, he says, pray that I preach boldly. Oh God, give us bold preachers because they delight in God. Not only in the pulpit, but in the pew and in the home and in the Senate and in the house. Make our land full of God's delight. For then, for then we know there is in place the kind of speaking that God blesses. Well, there's a second matter, and I kid when I say there has to be three points, but oftentimes I try to find at least three observations, sometimes there's more. But truly in this text, it really divides out nicely. If we want a preaching or speaking that God blesses, we not only need it to be bold or free, arising from the delight we have in the Lord, but it needs to have a sense of the fear of God. The next thing I do is I go back up to where it says spoke in such a way and I say, well, let's look at these words. Spoke in such a way. What's the word spoke mean? It's, it's innocent, easy to overlook. You could skip past it in your studies, say it doesn't matter. Or you could go ahead and pull your concordance out if you don't know the Greek or look up the Greek. Whatever the case is, use the tools. It's interesting that the word for speak is a word um, that, that obviously means to speak or talk. It's, it's a basic word, but it's added with an emphasis on the word. It even sounds that way. When you, you say it, la la leo, it's not, it's not just a root word, but it has a, a la la on it. it. It gives us emphasis in the Greek, and it's showing that it's, it's like a, the actual definition of it. It's like a child talking a whole lot. It really refers to much talk. It refers to like the bubbling over. Which reinforces the whole idea of delight. Now, sometimes I will say I am. It shouldn't surprise anyone that, and it shouldn't surprise your children either, that there's a tipping point for you at some point when they're asking questions of you. And uh, after reading and studying on this, I have to repent because oftentimes some of the best questions and conversations come from my daughters at night, very late. And I want, I want to just, you know, not hear that, not answer that, not work through that. Well, God's not like that. I don't want to be like the Lord. The speech that they're talking about here, the speaking that's being spoken about, the very word spoken about is the kind of speech when your child is asking you the late night question because she or he's bubbling over. There's no manners about it. It's just, I got this question out of the blue. I got this thought. I need to tell you, God, I need to talk with you about it. And God doesn't say, no, not now. God doesn't get angry. God doesn't chide us. Like a child in the presence of a loving father, it's the picture of a person 
just speaking out their heart, even if it's completely random. And the reason they can do that is because they know the Father loves them. There it is again, delight. You see the value of a good word study? Meditating, thinking through, what is God getting at in this good speech? It means to speak much, like a child, like in that situation. Uh, It deals with the reason and intellect in the aspect of man. The word way in 20 verse 11 is used when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten. He conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And so what we see there is that it's also long speech. It takes a while. I was encouraged the other week. Someone visiting said, wow, you guys get done early. And, uh, you know, for some they would say it was long. Then the visitor told me, oh, no, the church that I was going to goes five hours. Blessed are you, church. But really, what's the issue? The issue is this speech takes time. And this speech is one that's like a child just bubbling over. Doesn't necessarily have manners in it. You might say, Pastor, you're on your way. Thanks be to God. It's just innocent, though, isn't it? When a child just wants to talk to you about something, share with you about something, they're bubbling over, they're going and going and going. And our God never slumbers or sleeps, and He listens to His children, He loves them, and they speak that way because because His people know the Father loves Him. And maybe it is that the preachers in the pulpit and even the people in the pew need to direct their attention more to the Father who loves to listen to their prayers and loves to listen to their preaching because He's a Father who loves us. And out of the recognition of that, the very expression of our words, the very length of them, the desire of not impressing the world, but the total focus on the Father so that we come into His presence with such joy and delight because we know He's not scolding us for it, but He's listening and He's encouraging us and He's answering. This is the picture that is placed here in the word of speech. It's the sort of preaching that God blesses. It's not like the eloquence of the world. 1 Corinthians 2 says, I've preached that at at my second church. I remember my first, the sermon I preached on that, where it talked about Paul saying he's not giving himself to the eloquence of men. He's not boasting in human wisdom. He's not doing any of that. He boasts in one thing, the cross of Jesus Christ. But was Paul not eloquent? Yes, he was. He was absolutely, beautifully elegant in his speech. Because his speech arose out of God's word. It was taking the word of God and explaining the word. That's what made it good speech. It's not the eloquence of the classics, as some call it, or the scholastics that makes men believe in the Lord. It's the eloquence of God. And he loves words. He loves good words and he loves speech. That is defined as beautiful by his 
standard. It's not words alone. Ecclesiastes warns us of that danger. It's not just having many words. That is a warning. But it is the fear of God that fears not speaking enough for God. God have mercy on the pastor or the person who limits his speech in the pulpit or to his friend in reaching him because he's more concerned about pleasing men than pleasing God. When it is that God has shown you what you are to say to people and you refrain and turn a sermon into a sermonette because you want comfort, woe be to you that you have not done what your master has called you to. But when you do, And when you fear God enough to fear not speaking enough for him. Then it is you have preaching that God is pleased with and that God blesses and that God brings people to him. That's one thing that I can say experimentally in my own life this week and facing a grave. My dad and doing the funeral for that. The one thing I determined is that I would endeavor to fill this earth henceforth with words that are beautiful for God. And while I was there, I didn't even wait. Repentance, if you're, if you're called to repent of something, you do it then. And I immediately began making the preparation to make sure I could get the word out again. I'd refrained from it. I'd been shy of it. I'd been a little fickle by it. There had been some trials that made me Waver a little bit. And I said, no more. No more. No more of this mystical and superstitious stuff. Come what may, we are called to bring and fill this earth with what we have been gifted to do. And by that point, at the grave of my father, my grandfather technically, but he's the father who raised me. I determined at that point that I would make it my aim to fill this earth with beautiful words. Because that's what God called me to do. That's what God gifted me to do. And there were confirmations of it. I had a a book handed to me. I had no idea I wrote it. It's a silly book. I hope it doesn't get out. That's not beautiful at all. But it was a reminder of what God made me for. It was a reminder of what he had put on my life before I was saved and before he unleashed me to do the work I'm called to do. And it was a book. I made everything from the cover to the pages to the copyright to everything. And it was handed to me by my aunt. Hey, I just found this. It had some silly things in there, but I wrote. Girls, don't you be getting that book out. Don't let that thing leak. We don't need another leak in this country. It was an encouragement to me. And God works in real time. He's not a God that just returns the second coming, which he will, and his son bodily, physically deserves and raise the dead, which I could have hearty confirmation at the graveside. But he's a God who's working in the lives of people today. And I encourage you, your story is not my story. But I encourage you to make sure you're not, you're not fearing man. But that you fear God enough to fear not speaking enough for God or not whatever God's called you to, doing enough for God. He deserves that we do all for Him. And He deserves we do much for Him. And if He's gifted you in an area, 
Do it all for him and do it much for him and walk with him in delight so that you do it well. And so pray for me, I will do it well. There's one more thing. And that is if you're going to have preaching or speech that God blesses, not only must it be bold and free out of a delight for God, and not only must it be one which is arise out of a joyful fear of the Lord, but it also must be, it must be faithful preaching, faithful speaking. We see that through the entire text of this as we see those things that are against these men. Look with me. It says in verse 2, after you have the great number of Jews and Greeks believe, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So what do they do? Next verse. So they remain for a long time. <laughs> Big door, many adversaries. This is great. It's like a, a, a young boy and his sister and the boy goes and gets in a fight and he's just bloodied up. He's just beaten silly. He comes home and he sits at the table and the sister just can't get past it. Oh, I'm going to get him. Oh, I'm going to go after him. Oh, look what they've done to you. And then the mother says, wait, 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 hold on a second. Let the boy speak. And the boy looks at his mother and looks at, his, at the sister and says, it was the greatest. It was the most wonderful thing. The boy has blood dripping out of his lip. He's been busted in the eye and it's just been the greatest day of his life. You see, we're made a lot different, aren't we? Men are made to fight. We don't always fight physically, but we're made to fight. We're made to defend. We're not afraid of getting bludgeoned here and there and dealing with a hit here and there. God's men are not shrinking back from doing what God has called them to do. We march. We walk with the Lord. We fight with the words of God. We carry our swords of the word of God in the Bible. And we fight against untruth. We seek to demolish every lofty opinion that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. We bring it to destruction. That's why men are called to be pastors. That's why men are called to lead. It's because to us... The fight and losing a few swings even at times is exhilarating to us. Not so much to the ladies. They're ready to go fight everybody that's messed with us. You see how it works though? These men, hey, there's a fight. We got to stay longer. Let's get in it. And they fought. They spoke boldly for the Lord. They bore witness to the word of his grace. Granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Those signs, of course, are signs of judgment upon Jerusalem at this time. But the people of the city, again, another thing shows up. It says the people of city were divided. 
The people of the city were divided. So there's more problems. It doesn't get better. It gets worse for them. But nothing's going to change the fact that many people got saved. And many more will get saved. The blood of the martyrs is even the seed of the church. Somehow it's just indomitable, isn't it? They go forward, even in the midst of division. And an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews. Notice it's an attempt and not successful. It's an attempt made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers. Because that's what the Jews were doing. They were the prostitute, the unbelieving Jews, that is. And they were riding on the back of the beast. I think that's the best explanation of what we see in Revelation happen. In real time of that time. And they're, they're getting the rulers. And they're, they're using the Gentiles, the Romans. And they're using the religious people. And they're forming a, a union, a unity to oppose God's church. And oh, if, if it was the case that those defensive gates of hell could prevail, we might have reason to be worried. But you see, Jesus told them already the gates of hell wouldn't prevail. An attempt was made to mistreat them and stone them. And they providentially learn of it. And there's a time to flee. Like if you live in California. (laughs) That's happening. Whole churches are getting out. There's a time to flee. God knows that time. God told them the time it was to flee because they would have to flee. When they saw that picture described to them around Jerusalem, it says now's the time to flee. And they would. It's not yet. They learned of this, though, and it was a preview of that. They fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lycanuia, and the surrounding country. Did they stop? They know that they would be met with more trials, more difficulties. Did they stop? Well, the answer is no, they didn't stop. They continue to preach the gospel. You you can have, listen, you can have speech arising out of the fear of the Lord. You can have the eloquence of the speech that God blesses and rising out of delight for God freely, boldly, all that. But if you're not faithful in it, right, it's it's part of the kind of preaching or speaking God blesses because if you just give up all the time, If you just stop doing what you're called to do all the time, and if you don't learn perseverance through some of the failures, well, then the many people that you want to see come to know the Lord won't, at least from a human side. You know, God's sovereign. He brings all of his people. But I'm saying that from the human side, just hypothetically, the good news is this. You say, this is much of a demand on me to be free in my speech uh, to be fearing God, not speak, to speak en- um, enough, no matter what people are, are diagnosing as far as eloquence, and to be faithful in it, that's a lot to demand of me. Well, yeah, it's more than you could ever deliver on your own. You see, this, 
speaking or preaching that God blesses is not from your own oomph or effort. It is from the grace of God. And again, what underscores that? I keep coming back to Paul because Paul's the one who's the focus in this. And when I come back to Paul, I'm reminded Paul was the master of speaking about speech. And when he said, pray for me, what was he doing? He was saying, I can't do that without God giving it all. So everything I've, I've preached today, everything I've said that's the preaching that God blesses has to come down from God. Spurgeon would say, I'm nothing. My preaching is nothing without the prayers of my people. But look at what God did through the prayers of the people Spurgeon pastored. Wow, that must have been a praying church. All you have to do is read the bib line of Spurgeon in any sermon he preaches. Gold everywhere. You see, you see, the kind of preaching God blesses arises out of a prayerful congregation and out of a, a humility of seeking the need. Pray for me. And I could say much has been accomplished in my own life this week in this very respect. Because people prayed, I saw great works accomplished. In the midst of dark. God is the God who brings out of darkness light. Out of of confusing times, peace. Out of the worst circumstances, glory. It's grace upon grace upon grace. In Colossians, we could go through the whole Bible and do a whole section on speech. We could say Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This lets us know very clearly that speech is not just in the hands of the preacher. It is the requirement, good speech, of all Christians. But for the pastor, someone like Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech. Why would you have to set an example for the believers in speech if you didn't want them to speak well? In Titus, in sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Paul obviously cared how we spoke because God cares about how we speak. And in case you miss it, in case you miss it, the, the, the message of this whole text from verse 1 through 7 is that there is indeed something to the way we speak that accomplishes by God's grace great things for the glory of God. So let's go after that. By first going after the Lord. Amen. Let's stand together if you would. Father, now it is, I pray, you would take the words proclaimed 
Seal them to the hearts of your people and produce the fruit you so desire. Help us, Lord, in all these things to be those who are faithful, who fear you, who speak freely out of delight in you and desire to honor you and to do so consistently and long because we want to please you. Help us to be a people of prayer because we are a people of you, Lord. And help me in this pulpit week by week. And at my desk in writing. And in my conversations, counseling. To always speak well for your name. The wellness being defined by these three things. Faithfulness. Fearing you. Freely speaking with boldness. And we thank you, Father, in advance. For not one word will fail which you have revealed and promised to your church. We take heart that in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Now, Father, bless that which represents the very thing that justified us freely before you. And opened our lips in praise, the very broken body of our Lord, and the blood that was shed for us of the new covenant. And as we take of these things, may they nourish us and strengthen us in the faith, and be to us a delight. And even on this day that's yours, that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May you come.